his name. Amen. Let me see if this, how this, uh, if I'm going to get this to work all right. That, yeah, there we go. Okay, before I get started here. Um, what I want to do tonight is I want to begin a study. It's going to be four or five weeks study, and I've uh, titled this, It's About Time, and I'll explain a little bit more of what it's going to be about here in a moment, but I'm calling it Bring the Future into Focus. But when we finish this study, and I'm going to do the, the four or five weeks for this, this study, do the whole, this whole study myself, then uh, we're going to begin a study of the Beatitudes. Um, Jay came up with a great title for that, Hashtag Blessed. So some of you that are younger get that. I didn't get it. He explained it to me, though, and it's really good. So it has something to do with stuff on, uh, you know, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or something. But anyway, um, but anyway, a study in the Beatitudes. It's a rich study. Um, those of you who've been to Israel with us, you remember going there to the Mount of Beatitudes and, and being there in that beautiful church that's there. So we'll begin that study after we finish this, this one we're in now. So that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, but the study I want to do for the next four or five weeks is something I've wanted to do for a long time, uh, but I've not done. And um, it's kind of been triggered by some thinking in my own mind about how to, to kind of clarify all the information that's out there in eschatology and Bible prophecy in a way to kind of simplify it. Um, I wrote a book that came out a few months ago with a friend of mine named Ed Heinsohn. And the name of the book is, Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? We wrote that book because a lot of people are saying that, you know, they don't even believe in the rapture, you know, let alone the pre-trib rapture. And so uh, we wrote that book, and I think we, we've interacted with the best scholars that don't believe in the rapture and have other views on that, and uh, tried to make a, a really solid case for the pre-trib rapture. But we did it in a way where we're not combative, you know, we're not mad at anybody that disagrees with us. We don't dislike them or berate anybody, but just simply trying to present the view uh, that we hold. Uh, but what I want to do in these next few weeks is kind of do a more in-depth study. You're going to need your thinking caps, and I pray this will be successful. Um, I'll probably find out in three or four weeks, you know, get feedback whether we've been clear or not, and this has been a helpful study, but I hope it will be. Um, this is going to be more, uh, on these Wednesday nights, more information uh, than probably normally is given. And I, I know you all are a sharp group, and we'll try to make it as clear as we can and kind of go back and review each week to help you get some of these categories in your mind. But I want to talk about this because you all know that I like Bible prophecy and eschatology, and the reason I like it is when I was in my early 20s, when I began to study the Bible, when I began to study prophecy, it was prophecy that put the Bible together for me. And I remember one time when I was having lunch with Dr. John Walvoord, who was the kind of the dean of Bible prophecy, and I asked him why he loved prophecy so much. And he said, well, if you love the Bible, you have to love prophecy. Because about a third of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was written. So if you love the Bible, you love prophecy. And I, I really thought about that, and I thought, you know, really, as I think about it, that's really why I like it is because I love the Bible. And it helps you put the Bible together. Uh, but it's very neglected today, Bible prophecy as an eschatology. It's very dismissed. In fact, I think a lot of younger people, and those of you here that are younger, you can, you can see if this resonates with you and maybe with some of your friends, but they kind of see prophecy today as kind of tabloid kind of stuff. And I think as good as the Left Behind series was to bring prophecy to the forefront, I think also, it made some people kind of see it as kind of fictional or just kind of a story or kind of tabloid type stuff. And so I don't know all the reasons, but I know it's very neglected today. I mean, that, that's tragic because, again, 28% of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was written. 
Uh, there, are five, there are a thousand prophecies in the Bible, uh, at least that's how many Dr. Walford came up with. 500 have been fulfilled. 500 are yet to be fulfilled. I mean, think about this. The very last sermon that Jesus gave was a sermon about the future, the end times. His great sermon on the Mount of Olives, they're looking down into the temple area of Jerusalem. When his disciples ask him, you know, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? By the way, you'll notice Jesus didn't say, hey, don't worry about signs of the times and all that stuff. He gave them a long litany of signs that would portend his coming. So the last sermon Jesus gave was a long discourse about the future, about the end. Now, the final book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, again, we're going to talk about that tonight, but my view is it's a book that tells us about the future and takes us basically all the way uh, to eternity. Something else, and I know I've mentioned this before, but, it, but this is something I think about a lot, is the, the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. They're very eschatological letters. In fact, Second Thessalonians is about 40% uh, prophecy. And and here's something that's fascinating. If you go back to Acts 17, when Paul arrived at the city of Thessalonica, he probably was there for about four to six weeks. It's probably how long Paul was there. These were people steeped in in paganism, uh, steeped in uh, in Greek uh, mythology and all of that. And Paul comes there and preaches the gospel, and a group of people there are saved and converted. And you remember Paul and, and his companions get run out of Thessalonica, they leave, and Paul makes his way down to Corinth, and he writes First and Second Thessalonians back to them from the city of Corinth just a few months later. And when Paul writes back to them, he writes back to these believers, and he mentions in his letters to them the day of the Lord, uh, the rapture, uh, the Antichrist, the removal of the restrainer, you know, the man of lawlessness, all of these various things. And we know that he had to have already taught them about these things because they have questions about them. So you think about this. Paul goes to a city that's pagan. These people become believers right out of, of Greek mythology. And he says the beautiful statement in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, you turn to two God from idols to serve the living and the true God. But Paul's there with them for four to six weeks. And he teaches them about the day of the Lord, the rapture, the Antichrist, the removal of the restrainer. And I always like to say today, most people could go to church for 20 years and never hear any of that stuff ever mentioned. So we tell people today, whatever you do, if somebody just gets saved, you know, don't tell them about prophecy. But yet Paul told these brand new believers about all of these truths because they were in a a place of suffering and persecution, and it was to give them hope uh, about the future and the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. So When Bible prophecy is neglected, they are dismissed. It always bothers me because Paul taught new believers these great truths to anchor them and to ground them in uh, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So what I want to do over these next few weeks is give kind of what I call a primer on prophecy. And I've never done this before in our church. We've talked about the rapture and the millennium and a lot of these different things, but we've never done it like this. What I want to do is give the key categories of the main issues in prophecy and and try to help us get the main terms and those key categories sorted out. Kind of a a framework, if you will, that we can establish to look at all the other details then of prophecy underneath that. Now, something that I discovered some time back on my own, I've never heard other people really emphasize this, but 
the main issue when it comes to studying Bible prophecy or eschatology is timing. That's the main issue. Um, Now, it's not the only issue, but it's the key issue. For instance, and we'll talk about this over the next few weeks, when you talk about the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus, there are people that believe we're in the millennium now, that the 1,000 years is symbolic, that this is the millennium. Others, like myself, believe the millennium is future. So it's an issue of when will the millennium come to pass? You take the issue of the rapture. We're going to talk about that too here in a, a few weeks. You know, people believe the rapture will happen before the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, right? Everybody who's a Christian should believe in the rapture because it's in the Bible. It says one of these days, we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's going to happen sometime. But the issue, again, is a disagreement about when it will happen. And when you go to passages like Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog-Magog War, this invasion of armies into the land of Israel, the, the big issue about that is the timing of it. Is it going to be, has it already happened in the past? Is it going to happen before the tribulation starts, during the middle of the tribulation, the end of it? Again, it's timing. Um, Isaiah 19 is a passage about the destruction of, 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 of uh, Damascus. There's people that believe that's already been fulfilled, people that believe it's yet to be fulfilled in the future. In fact, if you go back and read a lot of the the passages about the nations, there's long uh, sections about the nations in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The difficult issue in those sections is which one of these prophecies have been fulfilled and which ones haven't been fulfilled. So again, it's it's a question of timing. And so what I want to spend our time on these next weeks is talking about timing of these issues. That's why I've called this study, It's About Time, uh, Bringing the, the Future into Focus, because that really is the key issue. And if we can get some of the main issues of prophecy sorted out in reference to time, a lot of the other things then fall into place uh, underneath that. Now, let me say one thing before we get started. I think it's very important. There are four key pillars of an orthodox eschatology. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel, there's four things you need to believe about eschatology or about the future. And all Christians should agree on these four things. And if someone agrees on these four things, then as far as I'm concerned, we're good to go. Now, we're going to have to, we debate a lot of other things underneath this. But the first one is we believe in a literal, visible return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended to heaven, the angel said, you know, this same Jesus who you've seen go into heaven is coming in like manner as you've seen him go. He's going to come back literally, bodily, physically to the earth. So that is the the, the first linchpin, if you will, in a, a biblical eschatology. The second thing is a bodily resurrection. Uh, believers, we, uh, we believe there's going to be a bodily resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Many passages make that clear. Jesus was raised bodily. We will be raised bodily as well. It's not spiritual. The, thir- the third thing is the final judgment. We believe there's going to be a final judgment. It's going to be an accounting of all people. Now, again, there's differences of opinion on will there be several judgments at different times? Will it be one great general judgment? But we all believe in a future judgment. And Believers in the gospel and the scriptures believe in a literal heaven and hell. There's a lot of people that don't believe in that now. Now, almost everybody believes in a literal heaven, but a lot of people don't want to believe in a literal hell. 
So these are the four pillars of an orthodox eschatology. Those are, these are the four great non-negotiables, if you will. And I always like to establish this because uh, these are free, three events that, or four events we all believe uh, will happen. And uh, these have been crystal clear throughout church history. And we, though we may debate other details of the end time scenario, these are kind of the immovable pillars of a biblical eschatology. So you know, if someone believes in these things, then they have an orthodox view of the end, even though they may disagree with us uh, about other things. Now, one of the main uh, criticisms of, of, for people studying Bible prophecy is that there's so many different views that it gets confusing. And I can see why people say that. Uh, believe me, I can see you know, people say, man, there's all these different views out there and all this stuff. Um, I sympathize with that sentiment, but what I want to do is try to, to simplify the various views and categories for all of us here so that when you hear some of these different terms, again, you'll have a grid or a paradigm or a framework, whatever word you want to use, to kind of see these things through. And so the starting point really in all of this, I think, is uh, to get the main categories in mind. Prophecies constructed upon really three main building blocks. And let me give these for you here. You can write these down if you want. You, you have to have a general framework at the top just concerning prophetic events. When do you think they're going to happen? Are they past? Are they happening now? Are they future? And we'll talk about that here in a moment. The next great event, though, is kind of like a funnel. You have to have your, your big framework in place of how you see these events. Then the next main event, really, is the idea of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's a lot in the Bible, I believe, about this coming reign of Jesus. That's the next thing, and there, there's three different views, main views on that. And then as the funnel narrows down, the final view is your view of the timing of the rapture. So you have a general framework of how you see these things, then you have a, a view of the timing of the millennium, and then you have a view of the timing of the rapture. And when you get a, an overall view, and you have a view of the millennium and the view of the timing of the rapture, you kind of then have your eschatology pretty much sorted out. A lot of the other things uh, fall into place. So Breaking it down this way has really helped me a lot, and I came up with this to simplify this for myself. Now, we'll see when we're finished how simple you all think it is, but hopefully you'll agree with me that this is a, a simplified way to understand these things, because what I want you all to do, especially you're coming here on Wednesday nights, and I know you all are interested in studying the Bible in depth, is when we give other sermons about other topics and prophecy, that you'll be thinking in the, the terms of these broad frameworks, and you'll have this in mind. Um, one thing I want to mention, too, this evening, we're not going to get into the Bible as much as we will the next week. The next week, we're going to be in the Bible, looking specifically at passages. We'll do some of that tonight, but tonight's going to be a little bit broader and more theological. So I don't want you to think we're not going to be looking at a lot of specific passages. We want to do that. Now, when you look at the, the, the whole basic view or your categories at the top, there are five main categories you can fall into for the timing of events and their fulfillment. And let me mention them up front, and I want to go through those here tonight. The first one is preterism. The word preter is a Latin word that means past. And so preterists see most 
or some of them see all of the prophecies in the Bible as having already been fulfilled. So those are preterists. It's past. Then you have historicists, and they say that prophecies are being fulfilled today. They're seeing a lot of prophecies. People, you always hear them say, this is a fulfillment. You know, this is a fulfillment of all these prophecies. That's a, more of a historicist idea. Then there's idealists, and they don't really see prophecies as really having any real concrete fulfillment. It's just kind of all symbolic and, and uh, uh, allegorical more. Then you have futurists who see it as f- most of the prophecies as future, particularly the book of Revelation from chapter 4 on is future. It hadn't happened yet. And then, as there always is, there's a fifth view that's just come up in the last few years called the eclectic view, where they mix all four of them together. And I call that the cop-out view. <laughs> Somebody's trying to always mix it in and you know, take the strengths and weaknesses of different ones, and um, you know, it really doesn't work very well. But anyway, that's another view. So I want to go through and just mention these, because these are the broad categories, and a person who's studying prophecy or eschatology is going to fall mainly in one of these categories. So that's kind of going to kind of define your overall view of prophecy, especially the book of Revelation. Now, preterists, they view uh, most, again, or all of prophecy having been fulfilled. Now, again, I don't you know, want to complicated even further, but there's people called partial preterists, and they believe that there's still going to be a future second coming someday and a final judgment. But full preterists believe that we're in Revelation 21 and 22 today in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, that's depressing, but that's what they believe. They believe that everything's happened, and if there is going to be a coming of the Lord, we don't know. We don't know what the future holds. They think it's all, all been fulfilled. But what preterists do is they believe that prophecy was fulfilled primarily in the book of Revelation in in and around A.D. 70, which was the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. So they believe the book of Revelation is about the Jewish war from 67 to 70 A.D., and the coming of Christ was a coming through the Roman army in 70 A.D. to destroy Jerusalem. Now, partial preterists still believe there will be a future second coming, but they would say 70 A.D. was a coming of Jesus through the Romans to destroy uh, the city of Jerusalem. Now, you say, well, how does someone come up with a view like that? They go to timing statements. If you go back to Matthew 24, Jesus gives all those signs and all the things He talks about there, and then He says down in verse 36, this generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. They say, well, look, if the generation He's speaking to there isn't going to pass away till all this stuff's fulfilled, then this has to be talking about A.D. 70, and it was all fulfilled then. Now, I take the, this generation, what he's saying is the generation in the end that sees these things, that generation won't pass away till all those things are fulfilled. Not the one he was talking to, but the generation that sees these things in the end. And also, when you go to the book of Revelation, right in the first uh, three verses, it says there, the time, the, the time is near. It tells us that these things are at hand. Um, so when preterists read that and it says that the, the events in the book of Revelation are near and they're at hand, they say, well, it has to be something then that happens soon historically. And so they date the book of Revelation back in the 60s 
the mid-60s, and they say that it's prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in A.D. 70. That's the view they hold. So they see most prophecy as having been fulfilled. And, you know, a lot of times people hear a view like this if they've never heard it before, and they think, well, who in the world would hold a view like that? Well, a man as esteemed as R.C. Sproul uh, held that view. Um, now, he wasn't as angry about it as a lot of other preterists are, but um, he held that view. Hank Hanegraaff uh, holds that view. A lot of others do. Uh, Kenneth Gentry and uh, Gary DeMar and many others. Now, again, there's, there's full preterists, and they say it's all, everything's already been fulfilled. Now, I believe that full preterism is heretical because they don't believe in a future bodily resurrection. They don't believe in a future literal second coming of Jesus, none of that. So full preterism, I think, is a heretical view, at least a small h heretical view. But partial preterism is not heretical because they still believe in a second coming and a, a final judgment and those things. So the, the preterist view, moderate preterists view the, the tribulation and the majority of prophecies, again, surrounding the events of 70 A.D. Um, I like this right here, this little sign, you relax, it all happened in A.D. 70, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, the guy carrying the old sandwich board in that day. Um, the, the problem, there are a lot of problems with preterism, um, but one of the big problems with it is if you read through the book of Revelation, they'll find things in there that they, can, they, they try to take literally to apply to A.D. 70. And so they'll, they'll find some things they take literally, but then anything that they can't fit literally into A.D. 70, they'll say, well, the book of Revelation, after all, is apocalyptic literature, and so that's just symbolic. And then they go back again and find something they can literally interpret, and then if they can't fit it in, they say, well, that's just symbolic. And that's kind of like when you used to have your friend over and you'd start playing a game and you'd change the rules. You know, they didn't know the rules, and you're kind of moving it around as you go. And uh, that's what preterists do. It's just... If they can find something that fits A.D. 70 that's literal, they use it. If they can't, then it's just symbolic. It's just back and forth. So to me, it's an inconsistent uh, hermeneutic or method of interpretation they're applying that they just apply really without anything in the text signaling to them that you ought to make a change. I like that. The other big problem with preterism is that they believe the book of Revelation was written in the mid-60s because if Revelation is a prophecy about A.D. 70, it had to be written before that, right? But the problem is, starting early in church history, the dominant view by far is that the book of Revelation was written in 95 A.D. Well, if it's written in 95 A.D., it can't be a prophecy about stuff happening in 70 A.D. Um, in fact, I uh, read a lot about preterism, so that I did my Ph.D. dissertation at Dallas Seminary defending the 95 date of the book of Revelation, and I went in convinced about it and came out even more convinced. And so you all know that any theological position is only as strong as its weakest point, and the Achilles heel of preterism is they date the book of Revelation in of the mid-60s. And that's a massive problem. Um, there's a lot of things I could say about this. If you ever want to get my dissertation, it's at a place called pre-trib.org. You can go read it there. It's great if you have insomnia or things like that. So you can always uh, pick up a copy. It works better than uh, Ambien or any of that stuff does. So that's one of the good things about dissertations. But I just put this up here for you to see this. Back in, in church history, this is the line of people that held to the 95 date. And the 65 date, the first person who mentions it specifically is in like 500 A.D. 
So people very early in church history are saying that it was written in, in the reign of the emperor Domitian, which is in 95 AD. In fact, um, this is a quote by a man named Irenaeus, who was a, a luminary in the second century in, in uh, the church. He said, we won't incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist, for if we were, it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision, talking about John. For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. And the Roman emperor Domitian, he died in 96 AD, so people date at the end of his reign about 95 so, so Irenaeus, by the way, Irenaeus knew Polycarp, and Polycarp knew the Apostle John. So I mean, you can't find a better guy to tell you when Revelation was written than Irenaeus, and he tells us that it was written near the end of Domitian's reign. Now you say, well, what do, what do uh, preterists do with this statement? Well, some of them just say Irenaeus was wrong, which is kind of interesting. You know, they live today in 2018, and they're saying, you know, Irenaeus back then didn't know what he was talking about. I, I know more about it than he did. And other people will say that it doesn't mean that, uh, John's, that uh, John saw the apocalyptic vision, but that John himself was seen near the end of Domitian's reign. Now, that is torturing the meaning of this statement to make it say that. So anyway, it just shows when people have a position, I mean, they got to do something to, to try to wriggle out of it. And I could put up, you know, many, many quotes by early church fathers, I mean, people that, that held this view. But that's a, a view, and if you get on websites out there today, there are literally thousands and thousands of preterist websites. And one thing I'll say about preterists, and, and again, this is somewhat of a, a broad statement, but Generally speaking, most of the people who are really out there who are real adherents of this view, they're not, um, what, is, what word do I want to use? They're not the most gracious people towards other views. I'll just put it that way. Um, that's an understatement. So, um, you know, I've had run-ins with them many, many times about all kinds of different things, and they, they get very, very uh, heated very, very quick. They hate our view. Um, by the way, that's one of the things that makes me think my view is right. Everybody hates it. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, they, everybody gets really worked up for some reason against the view that I hold, and it kind of makes you wonder maybe if it's not right. Now, the second main category that we got preterists, they believe most or all of these prophecies have already happened. The historicists say they're being fulfilled now. So they would say the book of Revelation is a panorama of church history between the first and second coming of Jesus. So they're looking for things in the book of Revelation to be fulfilled in their own time. Uh, the, uh, the reformers were historicists, um, like Martin Luther and Calvin and others. And you can see, if you know church history, why Luther. Luther believed that Rome was Babylon. And he believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. And again, if you were in Martin Luther's shoes, you can see why he would say that. But it was seeing events in your own day as being the fulfillment of these prophecies. And the problem with historicism, though, throughout history has been that there's, there's no uh, agreed-upon interpretation of these prophecies because one generation lives... And they see these being fulfilled in their day, and then they die, and then another generation comes along, and they see them be fulfilled in their day. So the, the um, prophecies and the, the, the characters and so on in the book of Revelation, there's kind of constantly a moving meaning, if you will, for them. 
And so, you know, when you hear people all the time today saying, you know, this prophecy is being fulfilled, you know, we see the third seal judgment happening today over in the Middle East, that's historicism. They're seeing these things happening uh, today. And again, the problem with that is it's extremely subjective, and you're just kind of, uh, you're kind of a prisoner to your own times of, of identifying these things. So that, to me, is the great weakness of historicism. It's just, uh, it's totally subjective. It's kind of a, a moving target. Um, the, uh, the next view is the idealist view, and the idealist view is timeless. So you've got preterism that's past, historicism that's present, and then idealism that's timeless. Idealists envision the book of Revelation primarily as a depiction of a battle between the church and the world at all times in church history. So it's just a constant depiction of the church against the world. So when you come to the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, that's the church being uh, persecuted and suffering under the world. When you come to the woman in uh, Revelation 12, that's the church being persecuted in this battle with the world. Uh, When you come to the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, that's the church in this great battle with the world. So basically, it's just kind of the same thing over and over again, but they don't look for any real concrete fulfillment of these prophecies. It's just all a a great uh, symbolic statement of the church and the world I'm in combat during this time. The problem with idealism, and by the way, in seminaries today and out there in academia, idealism is the primary view. It's the the number one view because it's very uh, symbolic and very uh, allegorical in the interpretation. The problem with idealism, though, is it doesn't give any concrete meaning to the symbols in the book of Revelation. You say, well, how do we know that the symbols in the book of Revelation have concrete meaning? The way we know that is Jesus gave us the master key for interpreting the book of Revelation in the very first chapter. If you remember in chapter 1, John sees uh, seven candlesticks. You remember that? Seven lampstands. And he sees one like the Son of Man in the middle of those lampstands. And it says he's holding seven stars in his right hand. Now, you could read that, and and someone could come up with any interpretation you wanted to about what those seven lampstands are and who the Son of Man is and what these seven stars in His right hand are. And obviously, your imagination could run wild, as many peoples do, and come up with all kinds of ideas. But at the end of chapter 1, Jesus says Himself, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And those are the seven churches he's going to address in chapters 2 and 3. And he's, he's the Son of Man, Jesus is. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the seven stars in his right hand are the seven messengers or angels of those seven churches. So what Jesus is doing in Revelation 1, he's giving us a master key to the book of Revelation. He's saying, when you see a symbol, that symbol refers to something that's literal. The lampstands aren't whatever you want to make them mean. Uh, They're not just symbolic of of churches everywhere. They're those seven churches, those lampstands or those uh, angels or or those uh, stars or the seven angels of those churches. So I believe in chapter 1, Jesus is giving us this master key. So as we go through the book and, you know, we see a, a rider on a white horse, you know, with a bow and no arrows. The next one, we see a rider on a red horse 
and he's got a, a sword that's dripping with blood, and he comes to take peace from the earth. Those symbolize literal things that will happen, I believe, in the future. So that's the problem with this idealist view is it doesn't give any concrete meaning to to these symbols. What's interesting to me is a lot of idealists uh, are uh, are people who are Reformed teachers. They're Calvinists. And you get them in a place like the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, and man, they study it with just great detail, take every word and the meaning and all that. And then when they get to prophecy, it's kind of like, well, the details don't really mean anything. To me, the divine's in the details. If we're going to take uh, the book of of Romans and Ephesians and those books literally and study them carefully and look at the details, which we should, we should do the same thing in the book of Revelation. The details mean something there. They're not just thrown in for extra color. So that's the problem I have with with, with the idealist view. Um, The futurist view is the view that I hold, and that is the view, specifically looking at the book of Revelation, that chapters 4 and and following are future. They describe real people and real events that are yet to happen in this world that will take place uh, in that future time of the tribulation, the second coming of Jesus, the millennium, and on into the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, That's the view that I hold is is this, this futurist view. You say, well, why do you hold the futurist view? Well, the main reason I hold the futurist view is the futurist view is the only view that I believe you can be consistently literal in your interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now, when I say literal, what I mean is this. Yes, the book of Revelation is filled with symbols, but again, the symbols refer to something that's literal. You know, I don't think, you know, in, in, during the tribulation, a guy's really going to come riding out on a red horse you know, with a great sword in his hand dripping in blood. But what I believe that is, that, that, that symbol is a, 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 the referent, the thing it refers to is warfare in the earth that's going to take place. Because it says this rider on this horse is going to come out and he's going to take peace from the earth. And in fact, if you Look at the seal judgments there in Revelation 6. It parallels exactly the prophecies Jesus gave in Matthew 24. And one of the things he said is there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That parallels the rider on that red horse. So we can compare Scripture with Scripture and come up with these uh, interpretations. So um, I believe that uh, these prophecies are literally fulfilled. Now, The thing about it is, think about all the Old Testament prophecies um, that were given. How were all those Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus? They were literally fulfilled. You know, Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Where was Jesus born? He's born in Bethlehem. Um, We're going to talk this Sunday about that. We're going to begin our series on the 23rd Psalm. Uh, But the psalm before that, the 22nd psalm, the very first verse is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a picture there. It's a a messianic psalm of the Messiah. It's fulfilled literally in the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, You know, Isaiah 7 tells us that he will be born of a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. So, The prophecies of the first coming of Jesus were literally fulfilled. We should believe that there are prophecies of His second coming that will be literally fulfilled as well. That's the pattern that has been established uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament. Um, 
One of the problems, though, with the futurist view, the main objection against the futurist view is they'll say, well, now, wait a minute. If the, if the people in the first century were writing all these prophecies and they, many of them or most of them still haven't been fulfilled today, you know, 2,000 years later, how did that relate to the people in that time? It's uh, the objection. It's called reader relevance. In other words, what relevance did that have to people in, you know, 95 AD if it still hasn't happened yet? And the argument I would give about that is, well, look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is written in 700 BC. Isaiah prophesied the coming of a Messiah who'd be born of a virgin. That didn't happen for 700 years. All the prophecies in Isaiah about the coming Messiah weren't fulfilled for 700 years till Jesus came. You could look back and say, well, what relevance did that have to those people in Isaiah's day, right? It wasn't until 700 years in the future. The reason it was relevant to them is they didn't know when it was going to happen. So every generation of people lived with this hope, maybe the Messiah will be born in our generation, he'll come. And to me, it's the same thing with the prophecies in the New Testament they didn't know when they got them in 95 AD that almost 2,000 years was going to go by, right? They lived with the idea that these things could happen at any time. And every generation of believers has lived with this hope that Christ could come back uh, in, in their lifetime. So I believe that the futurist view allows you to be the most consistent when you're going through those chapters in the book of Revelation uh, in your understanding. Now, notice I said the most consistent because whatever view you take, there's always problems with our view. And you want to recognize those problems and be honest about them and don't hide from them. But what you're trying to do is find the view that you believe has the most positives to it and the least negatives. And another reason I think futurism is... is a, a good view to hold, especially the book of Revelation. You know, we have the book, the first book in the Bible, Genesis, that tells us everything got here. I mean, God's a good storyteller. It seems kind of odd that he just kind of leave you hanging and never tell you how it's going to end. I mean, with full preterists, we don't know what the future holds. And it just seems to me that God is going to cap everything off by telling us where everything's ultimately uh, headed in the future. And by the way, uh, the futurist view is uh, the view that was held uh, by, uh, by the early church. If you read early church fathers, um, I'll just mention a few of them here. Justin Martyr, uh, Irenaeus, uh, Hippolytus, who was a bishop of Rome. Victorinus wrote the oldest commentary uh, in Greek that still exists. And Victorinus took a futuristic view of the book of Revelation. He saw these things as, as culminating in the end times. Now, again, just because these early fathers held that doesn't mean it's correct, but it should give us pause if you have um, many, many people like this. Again, these are some of the greatest teachers in the early church, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Victorinus. They all had this futurist view of, of the book of Revelation of these prophecies. So here's a good way to look at this. Um, it's a slide I ran across. So preterism is saying that uh, all, everything was fulfilled before around 70, or at least most of it. Historicism says it's being fulfilled. Idealism says there's really not any historical fulfillment. And futurism says it's to be fulfilled, at least Revelation 4 and following. So you can see these different views. And 
whichever one of these views you take at the beginning, this is kind of your your broadest picture of prophecy, is going to determine a whole lot of things about everything else that you understand from there. So once you come up with, okay, I'm a preterist, well, I mean, that's going to determine a lot of the way you're going to read a lot of passages in the New Testament and in the Scriptures, or historicist, idealist, so on. Now, again, I mentioned the eclectic view, which is a combination of all four of the views. What eclectics try to do is maximize the strength of each view and minimize the weaknesses. But again, with their view, it gets very subjective because they're taking some of it preteristically and some of it historicist. And I mean, they're just back and forth all over the place. And again, what's the the consistent method of interpretation they're using to to kind of make all these different determinations? Uh, when I read uh, commentaries by eclectics, I just get confused is what I get. So I don't know, you know, maybe they're smarter than I am, but I get very confused when I read their commentaries, and sometimes I think they're confused as well about that. But these are the four big categories. So after you establish where you are in one of these four or five big categories, then the, really the next big issue in prophecy that you move to is what is your view about the millennium, about the thousand-year reign of Christ? Now, let me go uh, back to Revelation 20 and just read this because this is where we're going to pick up next time. But I just want to mention a couple things. You might be reading through this part of Revelation because we're going to spend next time talking about the millennium. And we'll come back and review these main categories next time. But if you think about the book of Revelation and chapters 19 and 20 and following and so on, preterists believe that chapter 19, where it says, I saw heaven opened, a white horse, he who sat upon it called faithful and true, comes back and smites the nations and so on, they believe that happened in A.D. 70, that this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem through uh, the Roman army by, by Christ. This was a coming of Jesus. Now, again, that's not the way it's been taken historically, but that's the way they take it. As a futurist, I see this as a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus back to earth. And it ends with the beast and the false prophet being thrown into the lake of fire, the armies that are gathered there at Armageddon and Megiddo being destroyed by the one who comes on the horse. And then in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of uh, the dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. That's where we get the idea of a millennium. That's the Latin word for a thousand years is a millennium threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who'd not worshiped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. 
But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then down in verse 7, you have a thousand years mentioned for the sixth time in these verses. So this is a key passage here, obviously, in the New Testament. It's the classic text on this thousand-year reign of Christ or this millennium. Now, just to introduce for next time to kind of get you thinking, and we'll close here tonight, but the other two views, other, not, not the view I hold, but amillennialists and postmillennialists, they get down here and have Christ coming at His second coming, and they believe then that the binding of Satan here goes back to the first coming of Jesus. So after he comes back again, we're recapitulating back to his first coming, and Satan is bound, and this thousand years is this, this church age we're living in now. It's symbolic of this church age. So to them, the kingdom is now. This is the kingdom. This is the millennium now. Whereas the view that I hold that we're going to be uh, ferreting out here and uh, uh, explaining is... Uh, that this is after the second coming, and it's Jesus coming back to earth to set up a literal kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years where He will rule and reign in fulfillment of all these prophecies in the Old Testament. So you can see it's a really different view of the future, and it's a different view in some ways even of today, of how we view what we're doing today. I want to close tonight. I know this is a lot of information. I read a great little book uh, a while back, kind of in preparation for this study by Phil Riken. It's a great writer. It's called Kingdom Come. And I want to read this story, and I hope this will minister to us tonight. He says, in the broken ruins of a bombed-out city, one man performed a solitary act of musical courage. It happened in the 1990s when the Bosnian War was ravaging the city of Sarajevo. There were deadly snipers on the nearby hillsides. Every night, bombs destroyed shops and homes and civic buildings. Desperate citizens scurried between the piles of rubble, looking for cover as they foraged for bread, the victims of war. One explosion was especially deadly. A bomb fell directly on a group of people lined up outside a bakery, hoping to get a morsel of bread when it opened for business. The blast killed all 21 of them. The next day, Vedran uh, Smolovich, I probably said his name wrong, but he came to the scene. He set up a chair, carefully removed his cello from its case, and began to play the beautiful strains of Albanini's Adagio. He did the same thing the next day and the day after that, 22 Adagios for 22 victims. He became known as the cellist of Sarajevo. As a veteran of the Sarajevo Philharmonic Orchestra, he would not let his music be silenced, nor would he let his people's hope grow dim. So Smodlevich played for funerals. He performed solo concerts in bombed-out buildings. In a place of death and destruction, his cello became an instrument of hope and his life a witness to holy beauty. Like the cellist of Sarajevo, Riken says, we have a melody to play. We live in the broken ruins of a fallen world where death and pain are daily realities. Yet as followers of Christ, we do not lose hope. Instead, we scrape out the gospel on the strings of our souls, making music that proclaims the coming of the kingdom of God. And then he says this, we believe in kingdom come. This is not the last and final world. The kingdom is near as Jesus promised. He is coming soon, and when He does, He will make all things new. So we live in the hopeful expectation of the kingdom of God.
And I close with that because that is our expectation and hope. I believe Jesus is coming back and he's going to set up a kingdom. And isn't that a, a beautiful way to put this? He said, we scrape out the gospel on the strings of our souls, making music that proclaims the coming of the kingdom of God. And I pray that all of us will do that. And I pray that uh, this study, even though it's a lot of information, will give us that hope. The kingdom's coming. Uh, the king is coming. And uh, the Christ is coming back. And we better come to him before he comes back. Because he's coming for those who know him. Well, we'll uh, pick up next time here. I'll review this every time. And uh, we'll try to get these categories down. And we'll move to the next section uh, next time. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have of a coming kingdom and of a coming king. And uh, Father, I pray for each one of us here that we're ready, that we're living lives that are pleasing to you. And Father, I pray that you would help each one of us in whatever way that we can uh, to scrape out the chords and the notes of the gospel on the strings of our souls as we await the coming of our king and the coming kingdom of God. Father, we pray that it will be soon. Even so come, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.